Hey, we are very lucky uh, today to have Secretary George Shultz and very much appreciate his willingness to come here. It was quite a negotiation to get him to come. I think this is about the... Have, uh, when I speak, do I have to speak as loud as you do? You're <laughs> um, I, the answer is no. Okay. You don't need to speak as loudly as I do. I'm, I'm used, not used to... As a non-famous person, I'm never microphoned. You're probably yeah, okay. mic'd all the time. Uh, but it was a negotiation to get him to come here. This is probably my, my fourth or fifth year attempting so. We had our final negotiation, although he might not know exactly how it went this morning, uh, mediated by his assistant. I called in a moment of panic and I said, is the secretary wearing a tie today? Because I felt like if he's wearing a tie, I better go home and get a tie. And she said, can I put you on hold? And I assume she went and talked to you about that. Um, and she said, the secretary's not wearing a tie. And I said, well, well, good. And she said, but would you like him to? He has one. And I said, no. And we went back and forth. And uh, so we're here without ties, um, but with microphones. Um, I want to resist the temptation to do a, a lengthy introduction. When you're speaking with someone of, of such eminence, we could occupy you know, the whole hour doing the introduction. OK, enough. <laughs> so let's go right on. What's uh, your first question? Quite a negotiator. Uh, the first question I had thought about was, um, as I read your book, you talked about a, a situation where we struggled with the, uh, some of Which your... Which book are you talking about? Um, the, your, your, uh, your essentially your autobiography that I read, the, 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 the thickest one I could find. I see. Um, well, I wrote one recently about, entitled, Putting Our House in Order, A Guide to Social Security and Healthcare Reform. So I reverted to being an economist worrying about those subjects. Mm -hmm. And the people in Washington are paying no attention to what I wrote. <laughs> well, this is our stealthy way of getting it. We're going to get the video out to them and uh, okay. make sure that they hear. So anything you say, we'll, we'll okay, get to ahead. Washington. Anyway, the, the first question is, how do we know when we should negotiate? Um, President Carter's administration somewhat famously cut off relationships uh, with the Russians after they invaded Afghanistan, and that led to some problems. We boycotted the Olympics, and then you and President Reagan decided that despite some tough relationship issues, we ought to keep talking to them. What should the uh, Obama administration do with all these terrorist nations? Um, should we be talking to them? And how do you decide when you should and should not negotiate with somebody? Well, you're always negotiating, whether you go and have meetings or not. If you say you're not going to have a meeting, you're negotiating. You're saying somehow the situation has to improve if you're going to get ready to engage. So it's a question of when you're going to engage directly. And in the, as we came into office in the Reagan administration, we parted company with two prevailing ideas. And I think in a negotiation, it's important to get your ideas straight because they represent your strategy. There was originally the idea of containment that started with George Kennan. You've probably heard of him. And the idea was in containment that if we can contain the Soviet Union long enough, that has stopped them from spreading, it will cause them to look inside themselves. And when they do that, they're not going to like what they see, and they'll change. And then we'll be able to have a decent uh, go with them. That doctrine morphed into what was called detente. Detente said, we're here, they're there, that's life. 
The name of the game is peaceful coexistence. Now, in the Reagan administration, we thought that was a mistake. We liked the earlier formulation. You also had the idea that was promoted of what was called linkage. Everything is tied to everything else. And if something goes really bad somewhere, you cut off everything. So in the Reagan years, we inherited the results of linkage. When the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, President Jimmy Carter said he was shocked and dismayed, and he cut off everything. He wouldn't allow our athletes to go to Moscow for the Olympics, maybe you remember that. He withdrew treaties from consideration by the Senate. He stopped the annual visit of Gromyko to Washington. Gromyko, being the Soviet foreign minister, traditionally always came to Washington at the start of the UN General Assembly meetings when he would come to New York. And so the, everything stopped. And we thought that was a mistake. And I remember when I took office, one of my close friends, because he was finance minister in Germany when I was secretary of the treasury, and we became very good friends, was a man named Helmut Schmidt. We're still very good friends. He was chancellor in Germany, West Germany. And he came to me and he said, George, the situation is dangerous. There is no human contact. So here we are, these two big countries with nuclear weapons sticking out all over the place and no real human contact, it's a mistake. So talking with President Reagan, we decided we should take steps to rectify that. And it started with meetings between me and Ambassador Dobrynin. He was the ambassador from the Soviet Union to Washington. And we decided to meet once a week. We talk about little things, little irritants, things that you, that you don't need irritants to just disrupt things, get them out of the way. So that's what we were doing. And then a kind of an accident happened. I was in China and we had worked out a somewhat different approach. And the visit was very good. Got a lot of time on television. I got home in Washington. It was snowing on Friday all day long, heavy snowstorm. You know what happens in Washington when it snows? Everything shuts down. They don't know how to plow streets or anything there. So. They still don't. <laughs> so the president and Nancy couldn't go to Camp David. No, no choppers could go. No cars could go. So my phone rings Saturday, and Nancy is on the phone, and she says, how about you and your wife coming over and having supper with us? We're stuck in the White House for the weekend. So we go over there. And we start talking, and they're asking me questions about the Chinese leaders. What are they like? I'd met with Deng Xiaoping and Lu Chen. So I'm telling them about it. 
And then they knew that I had been, as Secretary of the Treasury, had a lot of negotiations with Soviet leaders. So they asked me about them. And suddenly dawning on me, President Reagan very much wants to sit down and talk to these people. And he's confident that it would be a worthwhile thing to do. Now here's where the negotiation comes in. So I said to him, I have one of these meetings with DeBrennan coming up next Tuesday afternoon. What if I bring him over here and you talk to him? He said, that'd be a great thing to do. I'll do it. He said, it'll only take me five minutes. All I want to tell him is if his new leader, that time um, Brezhnev had died, a man named Andropov had become the general secretary of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. His new leader, Andropov, is interested in a constructive dialogue. I'm ready. That's all. It'll take me five minutes to say that. I said, fine. So Dobrynin comes over. I say, Anatoly, how'd you like to go see the president? He's quick diplomat. He says, great, let's go. So we get in an unmarked car, go over to the east entrance of the White House, nobody sees us. We go up to the family quarters in the White House and we sit down, the three of us. And we are there about an hour and a half. We talked about everything you can imagine. And President Reagan carried the conversation. He didn't have to rely on me. And um, showed a great deal of knowledge about all the intricacies. But he kept hammering on human rights. And how can we have any kind of a decent relationship when you treat people like this and we know that it just it doesn't click. And they kept talking about the Pentecostals. During the Carter administration, a group of Pentecostals, I think six, five or six, had rushed into our embassy. They wanted to worship their own way and they wanted to emigrate and they weren't allowed to. We couldn't expel them from the embassy because they'd probably be killed. Or who would know what happened to them? But it was an uncomfortable thing, and he kept saying, and look at this. It's just like putting up a big neon sign. We don't let people worship the, they, the way they want to. We don't have any kind of freedoms here. That's what that sign says. You ought to do something about it. So on the ride back to the State Department with DeBrin, he says, why don't we make that our project? So I went going to all the diplomacy of it. We went back and forth and finally we thought we had a good basis for persuading the Pentecostals to leave the embassy. And about two months later they were allowed to immigrate with all their families, almost 60 people. And the deal was, as President Reagan kept saying to Britain, all I want is to have these people given a chance, and I don't want to say a word about it. I'm not interested in any credit. I just want them out. So I always felt, here was the bargain. We'll let them out if you don't crow. That was the deal. Now, can you imagine an American politician who manages to pull off something like that? not saying what I did. Very tempting.
President Reagan never said a word. I don't know this, but I suspect that the Soviets, who understood our society very well, must have said to themselves, you know, you can deal with that man. He keeps his word. I think one of the most important things for you as a negotiator is your credibility. When you give your word, deliver. If you don't think you can deliver, don't give your word. And if you agree to do something that turns out more difficult than you thought, just move heaven and earth to get it done. Because I think in a negotiation, particularly if you're negotiating, say, with a Congress or something, trust is the coin of the realm. And if they say, you know, if he says he'll do something, he'll do it. I can count on it. Then you have, when you say something, they pay attention. But if you break your word, give it casually, then nobody wants to negotiate with you. So that's an that's, a, that's a great answer. It, it brings up two thoughts. Um, in a former conversation that you and I had, you talked about your, your long relationship with uh, Soviet Foreign Minister Shevardnadze. And there was a time I remember, I think it was around 88, when they were considering pulling out of Afghanistan, but we didn't trust them. There wasn't the, the trust, but you guys had a specific personal relationship that transcended the overall relationship. Can you talk a little bit about personal relationships and, and well, how that factors I think, in? I think personal relationships can be helpful. You shouldn't expect too much out of them because people are obviously going to represent the interests of their constituencies or they won't be your opposite number very long. On the other hand, a good personal relationship can help get rid of little annoyances and can also make it easier to level with each other. So when Gromyko retired as Soviet foreign minister, a new man came named Edward Shevardnadze. He was from Georgia. And I was to go to a meeting. We were scheduled a meeting in Helsinki, and we were both going to be present. And I heard that he was bringing his wife, which was unusual for the Soviet diplomats. My wife was coming with me. So we said, well, let's make friends with these people. That doesn't mean it's going to be any big deal, but at least we will be friends with them. So we get to the big, big meeting hall, and it's a much more rake than this. And we're in way back in this end. And I said, where's uh, Shevardnadze? He's way back there. So meeting is maybe 10 minutes from starting, and I walk down the aisle, and I go over, and everybody could see where I was going. So the whole hall kind of quiets down, and I go. And I introduce myself to Shevardnadze. Then we talk a little bit. Dobrynin is hovering. Everything is a deal, you know. If you give something, you get something. So I said to him, I got an idea for you. He said, what's that? I said, well, we're going to meet tomorrow over in our U.S. ambassador's residence. All meetings went back and forth. And we can set it up 
so that we each have a microphone in front of us, we each have an earpiece on, and we have interpreters in another room so you can't hear them. And when I'm speaking in English, the interpreter will be speaking to you in Russian and vice versa. So we can have a conversation. The way it's always been done before, the interpreters are in the room and it's consecutive. That is, I talk, then the interpreter talks, and so on. And it's much better. Save time, have more of a conversation. He said, okay, that sounds good. I thought De Brennan was going to go out of his mind. <laughs> he says, you can't agree to something that he suggests without getting something in return. So that got us off on a good foot. Um, but then the incident when you're, you're referring to, we had, of course, we met and we had an agenda. We talked about arms control. We talked about bilateral issues. We talked about what we called regional issues where there were points of tension. Afghanistan was one. And we talked about human rights. We finally got that established as a legitimate subject to talk about. And of course, they were still in Afghanistan. It was very tough going there. And so we were going to have a meeting about Afghanistan and Shevardnadze said, I'd like to see you by yourself for just a few minutes. So we went into a little private office, just our interpreters. And he said, well, we'll have this discussion out here and it'll, we can review our positions, but I want to tell you that we have decided, past tense, have decided to withdraw from Afghanistan. We're going to leave. And the only question is how much bloodshed will take place while we are leaving? Bloodshed on our soldiers' part, bloodshed on part of Afghanistan's, because a process like that can be messy. And maybe we can get around to talking about that. Well, I relayed that to the president. He, I he said, do you believe him? I said, yeah, I believe him. He wouldn't tell me that if it weren't true. But nobody else believed him, but it was true. And it was an interesting minuet, but I think the process did save a few lives in the process, theirs and Afghan lives. So it was a good thing. So personal relationship can help. It's not going to solve your problems, but uh, if you if you hate the other guy, it's not going to be too helpful, tough. I don't think. Yeah, one of the things that... But you got to be candid and tough, straight, give it to him the way it is. But sounds like good advice. One of the things that President Reagan was, was well known for, very persuasive um, person, both internally and, and you know, abroad, what, what do you think the sort of genius or insight of his persuasion was on the trust point, um, I think one of the more famous things that he repeated was trust but verify. So he wasn't into just blind trust. And what do we learn from him and his approach to things as a negotiator? He loved negotiations. And he had been the head of the Screen Actors Guild, the union of screen actors. And he had been their, their head. So he negotiated with the management a lot. 
And I'd done a lot of labor relations type negotiating, so we had always had fun talking about negotiations and enjoyed it and how things get settled and so on. So he, he uh, appreciated that sort of thing. Here's an example. I mentioned a trip to China, which he and I discussed negotiating strategy. Somehow, on the U.S. side of the U.S.-China relationship as it evolved, going back to the opening with Nixon and Kissinger and on through, there came to be a great value placed on the relationship, particularly on our side. The old China hands were very protective of the relationship. And I thought it was a counterproductive was overboard. So I remember going to President Reagan and saying, I think we ought to change our stance a little bit, and let me tell you a story. After World War II, labor unions were pretty strong in this country, and there were a lot of strikes, big strikes. And a lot was written about the conflicts. But some people pointed out that there are quite a few situations where labor and management seem to be able to work their problems out without strikes. So we should make studies of what was called the causes of industrial peace under collective bargaining. And I was a young assistant professor at MIT, and I wrote three of these case studies. It was interesting to go in and find out what people did and how they proceeded. But then I followed up a few years later and I found that all too often the relationships had fallen apart. And I tried to find out what caused them to fall apart. And the answer was always the same. People came to value the relationship, talk about how important it was. So somebody on a shop floor has a grievance and the shop steward says, cool it, we got a great relationship going up here, don't rock the boat. And the same on the other side. So in other words, the relationship wound up not serving the interests of the people in it, because they wanted to express themselves and they couldn't. So all of a sudden it blows up. So I said, yes, a relationship is important, but you shouldn't put such a value on it that you don't fully represent all of the contentious issues that you've got to face up to. So we should take the attitude that a good relationship emerges when you're able to solve problems satisfactorily for the people in the relationship. It's a result, not a cause. So I went to China with that point of view and I found out that the Chinese liked it. <laughs> they said, it's about time. We got around to talking concretely and factually and directly about our problems and sort them out. So they liked it. Uh, so I think in, in negotiations, you, you want to have a decent relationship, but 
you also have to call the shots, as you see. Yeah, it doesn't mean you don't want to work things out. You can like the person, and you still have to deal with the substance. Exactly. Interesting. So one of the, the things that we're facing now as a country, we've, we've used force and are contemplating you know, using even more force. We've got Iraq. We've got Afghanistan. Um, when you were the Secretary of State, um, there were different administrative opinions. You and Secretary Weinberger didn't necessarily see similarly the use of force and what criteria we should use um, when deciding whether to use force. Maybe share with the students a little bit about how you manage those tensions and what your view of should we use force or not and how you negotiate that. Well, to put the problem more generally, if you, there is an interaction between strength and diplomacy. And if you try to go into a bargaining relationship and you have no strength, no cards to play, you're going to get your head handed to you. So you've got to have some strength and you expect the other person to, too, too, so you have something to trade. And so the fact that we needed to build up our strength was obvious, and Secretary Weinberger and I and the President all agreed on that. Not only our military strength, but our economic strength. And we worked on that very hard. I don't know how people in the, representing the United States right now are doing it. We are so weak economically, we need to get our house in order if we're going to be strong. And you've got to have strength of purpose and willpower and confidence in yourself that you're on the right track. All of these things constitute your strength. And on the basis of that, uh, you can negotiate. Have you ever taken a look at the great seal of our republic? The great seal has a centerpiece as an eagle. And in one talon, the eagle is holding an olive branch. In the other talon, the eagle is holding 13 arrows. Shows how far back this goes. After World War II, President Truman noticed a rendition of the seal in the White House where the eagle was looking at the arrows. That seal is still there. I was in the White House the other day, and I saw it. I said, my God, it's still there. <laughs> um, but he wrote an executive order and said, any new renditions of the seal, official renditions, the eagle should always look at the olive branch to show that the United States will always seek peace. But the eagle should also always hold on to the arrows to show that the United States understands that if you're going to be successful in seeking peace, you have to have strength. So you have to have strength, and that means a willingness to use it. Secretary Weinberger and I differed on the problem of terrorism. I was much more worried about it than he was. And I felt that we should be willing to crack back at the terrorists, and we should be pushing our intelligence to find out about terrorist threats threats before they occurred and try to and take preventive action against them, which I think is, to me, is common sense. But at any rate, uh, we, had our, we had our differences along those lines. How, what would you take from your experience and apply it to the current state of affairs where, you know, we have the, um, 
the war in Iraq, that terrorism had at least some role in that. We've got the war that we're fighting now for seven or eight years in Afghanistan. Terrorism at least has a partial cause there. What would you advise the administration on how to manage that tension? Should we be using more force, less force, more diplomacy, less diplomacy? What would your advice be, on, on a, particularly Afghanistan, since that's a real decision coming up? Well, I might say just at the beginning, we only used force three times during the whole eight years of the Reagan administration. People don't realize how careful we were. We used force once when we had some 300 students in an island called Grenada that was taken over by a murderous regime. We asked to, take, to send in a ship and take them off that was denied. We said, send in planes, it was denied. And so we used force, we went to Grenada. We were in and out of there very fast. And that was one use of force. Another was we had absolute cold evidence of emanating from a building in Libya, orders and the direction of an attack on our soldiers in Berlin that killed six or seven of them. So we took out that building. And then we had a situation with Iran where the Iranians were playing games with Kuwaiti shipping. So we reflagged the Kuwaiti ships to the US flag. So we were entitled to protect them. And while the president of Iran was in the United Nations making a speech saying the last thing Iran would do would put a mine in the Persian Gulf our Navy was taking pictures of them doing it. Then we boarded the ship, took some lines for evidence, took the sailors off the ship, sank the ship, took the sailors to Dubai and said to the Iranians, come and get your sailors and cut it out. <laughs> now those are the only three things. We, we had the worst day of the Reagan administration was the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut where we lost 243 Marines, and I'm a Marine, so I really felt that. But that was, not a, that was a peacekeeping mission, uh, not a use of force. So we were very careful with you. Nothing like the Iraq, the Afghanistan, took place in the Reagan administrations. We had a different way of going about those things. But right now in Iraq, it's a tough decision for the president, but I think I don't see how you walk away from that Can situation. You talking about Afghanistan now, Secretary? Afghanistan. Uh, given the relationship of Pakistan and Af Afghanistan, the whole interplay of things, the nuclear weapons in Pakistan, uh, and the emanation from Afghanistan of the attacks on us. But I think it's important to get it conceptually right. I think if you look at the history of Afghanistan, you see that it's a country with many language groups. It's a country that's very mountainous, uh, hard to go from here to there, unless you invest an awful lot more in infrastructure than they have. So it's essentially a kind of decentralized country. I would describe it as a bottoms-up country, not a top-down country. So we seem to be, to me, excessively preoccupied with the central government 
and we need to focus on areas of Afghanistan that are key and and I think the strategy that I read about anyway is right, namely we go there to to work for the things that the local population wants. They want stability, they want peace, they want to be able to live their lives free of the threats from the Taliban and others. So we're on their side and that's what we try to produce. That's the right strategy, I think. But it apparently will take considerable forces. Interesting. Well, let's talk about one more current conflict before maybe going back into your career a little bit into the, the Nixon administration. The Arab-Israeli conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, um, you put forward, you worked a lot on negotiating uh, on that issue. In 1988, there was the, the quote, Schultz Plan um, that had lots of promise. I'm sure you were feeling it had lots of promise. Certainly, lots of others did. Um, we haven't made lots of progress since that time on that conflict. Can you talk about what you learned from negotiating with both or either sides there and the U.S. role and what we might do now differently if you were advising? Well, I have a cartoon in my office that uh, you mentioned the plan that I peddled. The cartoon was in the Jerusalem Post as I was leaving the area. The cartoon has sent it to me. Anyway, it shows me fending off blows. On the ground is a piece of paper labeled Schultz Peace Proposals. There's an Israeli with a club beating on me. There's a Palestinian <laughs> with a club beating on me. There's a Jordanian with a club beating on me. And the caption says, well, at least they agree on something. <laughs> so it's a tough neighborhood. But I, I firmly believe that you have to keep working at it. People would say there's not much probability that you're going to succeed. And I'd say, well, as long as there's a possibility, I have to be willing to spend a time and effort because when nothing is going on, the situation goes backwards. It doesn't go forward. It doesn't stay the same. It goes backwards. It gets worse. So you've got to stay in there and keep working on it. In the current scene, uh, I've made this suggestion, but nobody seems to take it up, so maybe it isn't any good. But I think it's very hard for a state to negotiate with a movement. So Israel has negotiated with Egypt, another state, and made an agreement that has held for 30 years. It's a cold peace, but it's a peace. And Israel negotiated successfully with Jordan. There's a peace agreement between Jordan and Israel. So it's possible to negotiate with a state because when a, it's like my first point, when a state agrees to do something, they have the, presumably the capacity to carry out their side of the agreement. But a movement that has all kinds of disagreements in it. It's not, it's hard to know how you negotiate with such a, an outfit. So my thought is, what I would be trying to do if I were doing it right now, would be to try to construct a regional negotiating uh, setup where Egypt and Jordan and Israel with the United States 
come to the table along with somebody representing Palestinians. And then you, you don't say you're going to solve the problem. You say you're going to work at the problem. And as you work at the problem, you agree that, well, here's something we can do in the West Bank that will make life a little better. And here's something we can do in Gaza that's going to make life better, and so on. And you try to build it up that way. And in Gaza, Egypt has some strokes, so they can stand for helping get the agreements carried out. And Jordan can do the same in the West Bank. And maybe that'll help develop some stature and coherence on the part of a Palestinian entity of some sort. And out of it may emerge a Palestinian state or some way of negotiating that will eventually solve the problem. But sometimes you have to recognize problems in a way can be put into two piles. You could say, here's a problem and I can solve it. If you say to me as a construction guy, build me a, build, build me a bridge across the bay, I can do that. Take my sales test, build you a bridge, you can drive across it. Problem solved, done. If you say, build me that bridge in such a way that there are no lost time accidents while a bridge is being built. And I put up some guardrails and one thing or another like that and say I've solved the problem I've lost. Because it's all about attitudes. I have to say to myself, this is kind of inherently an insoluble problem. And if I look at it that way, and I work at it creatively, professionally, tirelessly all the time, maybe I'll wind up getting the bridge built without a lost time accident. In the company, engineering company that I uh, have been involved in, we, had, we did lots of jobs with no lost time accidents. But that's because the first thing that happens to you when you walk on the job, whether you're coming to work in the morning or whether you're a visitor or anybody else, the first thing that happens to you is you get sat down and you get a safety briefing. Get it on your mind. And then people work safe. And if they see somebody not working safe, they say, hey, wait a minute, look, let's do this. It's the way we do it here. And then you can get the problem solved. Now, I think this Israeli-Palestinian thing is sort of like that. It's one of those weird situations where anybody can sit down and write out the answer. In their boundaries, and there's that. It's all there. The problem is you can't get to the answer that everybody knows is there. So that's what you have to figure out. And I think you have to have people at the table who have the authority of a state and have the attitude that I'm not going to solve this tomorrow, but I'm going to keep working at it. And in the process of working at it, I'm going to do little incremental things that after a while begin to add up. And then people begin to say, you know, make it getting somewhere. So go in there, get some positive things to happen and build incrementally over time as opposed to coming with an overall product. Well, in the, in the the last administration pulled off something very good called the Annapolis meeting. Maybe you read about it. But I thought they made, this meeting took place in the spring. I thought they made a terrible mistake in announcing that they expected to get this completed by the end of the year. I said, look, it's not that kind of a problem. 
You're just setting yourself up for frustration. Don't set unrealistic goals. You told me this class was about negotiating. So I gave a talk at the business school a few years ago. The students asked me to give the last lecture, so-called, or one of them. So I had my Ten Commandments for Success in Negotiations. And here's the first one. The most difficult and the most important negotiations take place within the constituencies. Whoever it is, if you're the negotiator and you're representing a company or a union or a country or whatever it is, that's your constituency. And so within that constituency, what is it that you want to get out of this negotiation? And you've got to be sure as a negotiator that you, your constituency is with you. They understand it. And then you have to say to yourself next, how's my opposite number doing? And has he or she got control of their constituency? Because if they don't, and you make concessions, you're wasting your breath. So you're constantly trying out whether or not your opposite number can deliver. Absolutely um, obvious. So there are all kinds of things like that. that yeah. In mind. One of the, since you cut me off in the introduction, didn't allow me to expand on all your, uh, your great achievements. Um, some of these students weren't even alive uh, during the Nixon administration. You had three cabinet posts, and I don't know if there's ever been anyone who had three cabinet posts in the same. Had four. Four. <laughs> four. So Treasury, uh, OMB, Labor, and what was the fourth? State. Well, that State. was in Reagan. Oh, Reagan. Okay. Um, so during Nixon, three, and, and one in Reagan. The Nixon administration, now that it's been some time um, passed, one of the things that you get from the books that are written are that there was this sort of creative tension between Secretary Kissinger and, and President Nixon. Um, it'd be interesting to get any perspectives you have on how internally things got worked out in the administration, because it seemed like there were some, some pretty big differences. And you sat in multiple different chairs through a lot of those meetings. So any, any perspective and learnings from those negotiations would be helpful to hear. Or anything you learned from President Nixon or observed about his negotiation style? I thought uh, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger actually made a good team and did, worked it very well. I felt a little sorry for the Secretary of State, Bill Rogers, because he got kind of cut out of the picture. And to me, that's a mistake because the State Department is your operating arm to do things and uh, needs to be part of the picture. But uh, I had an interesting time when I was moved. Well, let me, here's an example of something that has current applicability. When we have bailouts going on all over the place, right? And they bother people because people are saying, why should we be bailing out with our taxpayer money when the clowns were bailing out of the people who caused the problem in the first place? This isn't right. And bailouts and the threat of a national emergency or something are always on people's minds. As a professor at the University of Chicago, 
I wrote about strikes and the fact that they performed a function. They showed on the labor side how serious you were, on the management side how serious you were, and it was, there was a function performed, even though they were costly, and that excessive intervention, particularly from the White House, in disputes that were thought to cause national emergencies were overdone, and uh, not people fight it out. So, in along about August 1968, during the election year, there was a strike of the longshoremen on the eastern Gulf Coasts. And in the Taft-Hartley Act that governs these things, there's a provision that says if the president declares that a strike would create a national emergency, he can enjoin the strike. In other words, stop it, get a legal stoppage of it. And since this is a quick ongoing thing, there's built in the law what's called a fast track to the Supreme Court. The appeal goes right to the court. So in August, the strike starts and the president, Lyndon Johnson, declared that it would create a national emergency, enjoined the strike, was appealed, went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court agreed with the president. So the injunction held and it goes for 120 days. So the strike starts again on January 17th of 1969. And I become Secretary of Labor on January 21st. <laughs> so the press says to me, okay, Professor, we know we read what you said, now you're Secretary of Labor, what are you going to do? <laughs> so I went to the President and I said to him, Mr. President, your predecessor was wrong and the Supreme Court was wrong. This dispute will not create a national emergency. It's impressive how creative the economy can be and the marketplace can be. There'll be a lot of huffing and puffing and some difficulties created, but the difficulties are what will get the strike settled because it will cause pressures on the union, pressures on the management to get things done. And if you will stay out of this, We'll mediate. I know the mediators. I know who the best mediator is. We'll put a good mediator in there. And we'll get it settled. And if you do that, you'll send a big message that people are on their own in the collective bargaining process. They've got to work out their own problems. Instead of saving all their best offers until they get to the White House, they work it out. So if you don't do that, everything will come here where you are and he was a lawyer, so I put it in lawyer's lingo. I said, if you hang out your shingle, you'll get all the business. And you don't want that. You got other things to do. So he went along with that. And we got the strike settled after about three weeks. And it didn't create a national emergency. There's too much talk about systemic risk and everything goes fluey and so on and drastic things are done that are unwise, in my opinion. Better to sit down and work it out and bargain. 
So on some of the recent interventions in the auto industry and the insurance industry, you might have taken less of a role as a government. I think I wouldn't. As, there is a process called <laughs> bankruptcy that's a perfectly good process. Bankruptcy, life goes on while a court helps you sort out the liabilities and get the organization that went bankrupt back on its feet. That's the process. Perfectly good process, used all the time. So I don't see General Motors in the end went through bankruptcy. Why didn't it go through it in the beginning instead of getting a big haul from the taxpayer? Same with Chrysler. The more we learn about the bailout of AIG, the big insurance company, the more uh, questionable the whole thing looks. But people get panicked when um, things go wrong and they yell systemic risk. That's one of the things you have to resist. Yeah, that's great perspective. Um, we've just got about 15 more minutes, and so I want to open it up to the students to ask questions. The secretary is on a tight schedule and has another meeting in San Francisco that I've promised to, to facilitate getting him to. So well, I'm going taking my wife to dinner. Then we're going to the opera. That's what I have to do. And if you think that doesn't have high priority. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be interesting to get um, some of your perspective on the balanced life that you've led. But I want to open it up to the, the students. And I'll just repeat the questions um, for the microphone. Yeah, Raja. My question is this. Sometimes, OK, in, in the positions that you've held, you might have held your personal beliefs, whether they're based on your faith, how you were raised, and so on. And oftentimes, you might have been um, faced with situations where you had to be as, I don't know, balanced and fair as possible. Could you talk about a situation, and if you feel comfortable talking about a situation where your, maybe your personal beliefs were at odds with whatever situation was ahead of you and how you kind of negotiated or dealt with that important situation? So the question, just for the tape, is um, your own personal beliefs, um, how did they affect or not affect some of the decisions, and what dilemmas did that raise for you in key decision-making moments? Well, if you are in an administration, in the cabinet, you're working for the president. The president's the one who got elected. So people sometimes would ask me about my foreign policy. I would say, I don't have one. The president has one. My job is to help him formulate it and carry it out. But it's his foreign policy, not mine. Now, things come along and decisions are made and you don't always get your way. So your question is, well, suppose something comes along and the president decides his foreign policy is to go that way even though you think he should go that way. What do you do? Well, I think it depends very much on the nature of the disagreement. And if it's sort of technical, okay, that's all right. You defend the decision and you move forward with it. You don't want to serve in an administration if you're philosophically at odds with the president in the first place. But if the decision is one that's in your area and it's a deep matter and you're opposed to it, then I think you should resign. That is, you can't want the job too much. You have to stand up for what you believe. I'll give an example. 
When I was director of the budget, with the urging of the Secretary of the Treasury, a man named John Connolly, the president, with authority given him by the Congress, put wage and price controls into effect in the American economy. I was against that, but that was not in my direct area. That was in the Secretary of Treasury's area. But then a couple of years later, I became Secretary of the Treasury. And this machinery reported to me. So I had a process going on with the President's approval to get rid of the wage and price controls. We were making headway. Then some things got going in a little different direction, and the President over my objections, decided to reimpose wage and price controls. And I said, well, Mr. President, you're the president. It's your decision. I don't agree with it. And it's, in, it's a deep subject in my area of responsibility. So you should get yourself another Secretary of Treasury. I resign. So I think you, you um, have to sort it out that way. Actually, he said, well, you have been leading our economic efforts with the Soviet Union, and the leader, their leader, Brezhnev, is coming to town in a month and a half. Won't you stay and manage that and then leave? So I said, okay, I'll stay and manage that, but you've got to get yourself another secretary. So I think you don't want to be a little nitpicker, and I've got to get my way on every little whipstitch. Uh, you... You work at it and you're working in good faith with people you basically philosophically agree with. And sometimes things happen that you don't like, but that's life. But on the other hand, but you try to make good on those things. But on the other hand, if it's something that's deep, like the wage and price control example, then I think it's important to get out of the way and get somebody there who agrees with it. Okay. Uh, well, the question is, yeah, do you know what? Yes. Um, so you mentioned earlier in your um, talk that trust is at the core of negotiation. You mentioned that trust is at the core of negotiation. And I was wondering if you have any suggestions for the current administration in engendering trust either domestically or internationally. So trust being one of the key principles, um, do you have advice for the current administration, either domestically or internationally, to how to engender more trust? Well, I don't mean that, that you can't negotiate with anybody who you don't trust, but you want to be trustworthy yourself. That is, you want to be sure everybody can see that when you say you agree to something, you do and you can deliver that. That is, your constituency is such that they will go along with that. Uh, but you have to deal with people, and if somebody is a little shifty, you have to recognize that and uh, box things in and call for verification. I think we got to the point where we had a reasonable personal relationships with our Soviet counterparts, but 
when you're talking about something like eliminating a class of nuclear weapons, that's a big deal. And it has a big impact on the security of both countries. So that's when President Reagan kept saying, trust but verify. So you build into your agreement provisions that allow each side, not just you, each side, to have the kind of technical means used, and in this case, on-site inspection, so that each side could assure themselves that the agreement was actually being carried out as it was specified to be. So I think it's important to have that kind of verification built in. Okay, other questions, Garrett? So on the, like, on the issue of nuclear weapons, how do you deal with um, a country like Iran right now, who's like, we think is developing nuclear weapons, but at the same time is being pretty deceptive and you know, maybe is allowing our inspectors in, but at the same time secretly enriching uranium amino and other plants or um, work, working with uh, North Korea? So in the current Iranian situation, where there may be some doublespeak versus what they say and what they're doing, how do you approach that from a negotiation perspective? It's hard. <laughs> but I think you always have to be realistic. That's one key. Be realistic, be strong, and on that basis, be ready to engage. But when you see that the other side is engaging just for the sake of engagement, that is, using a negotiation to play for time. Keep it busy negotiating while I'm busy building up my nuclear capability. That's not a good deal. So you've got to have some way of doing something conclusive that stops them from using negotiations as a ploy to gain time. That's about, seems to me that's what they've been doing. And there has been no um, no show of strength. There have been occasions when the United Nations Security Council has said to Iran, stop enriching uranium or something like that. They pay no attention. What happens? Nothing. So when nothing happens, your word is no good. Uh, if you're, as I said earlier, if, if you don't mean it, don't say it. But if you say it, you must have in your mind something you're going to do if what you say shouldn't happen happens. So I think we have to get to the point with Iran where uh, the chips go down, and they haven't done that yet. Okay, so and probably there needs to be something decisive. I, I mentioned the example we had of the mines in the Persian Gulf. And that was a form of negotiation and action and stopped them putting mines in the Persian Gulf. That ended it. Okay, someone from this side. Yes, Natalie. Um, about a week ago was marked the 20-year anniversary of the coming down of the Berlin Wall. And so that, I think, was really symbolic for information sharing and for a new globalized world. And so I'm curious your perspective on how this new world of information sharing changes 
the nature of negotiation between states from when you were um, partaking in it to, to what it is today? So today, um, there's an argument that could say that there's more awareness, at least in this country, of globalization, interchange between countries, the come taking down of the Berlin Wall 20 years ago was a symbol of that, and there's been a lot of attention in the media. How are things different um, today in terms of um, the process of international negotiation? Well, it's all in real time now. It's all immediate. Everybody knows what's going on. And uh, I started once, right after I left office, I had the idea of doing a documentary about statecraft. And I talked with my friend Jim Lair, you know, who does the Jim Lair News Hour. He's a great guy. We we're going to do it together. So we had this idea for getting at your point. We said, let's regard the Lewis and Clark expedition as an exercise in diplomacy. Lewis and Clark went out into the western part of the United States in an exploration. They were to find out who's there, negotiate with them. They had instructions. That, so we said, okay, what's the, what did they do and what would be the same today and what would be different? So the same was they had instructions for what they were supposed to do. They had gifts to give to the Indian tribes that they met. They were authorized, if they thought properly, to give them invitations to come to Washington and have meetings, big time stuff, and a variety of other things. On the other hand, Lewis and Clark uh, started out to explore a country that was nominally belonging to the French. And travel being what it was, they left Washington and went to St. Louis in the autumn, spent the winter there, so when the spring came, they could get going. And in the interim, Jefferson negotiated the Louisiana Purchase. So this territory wasn't French after all, it was US. On the other hand, the people in the territory never heard of either one. <laughs> so, when they had their first meetings, well, they didn't, weren't able to report back to President Jefferson for a year. But these days, when you came out of the teepee, there'd be TV cameras there, <laughs> and you'd have an instant communication back, and, uh, and you'd have cable traffic and so on. So the whole thing is, uh, is very different. Um, We saw this in the Philippines when Marcus was um, made all of his mistakes and wound up leaving in favor of Cory Aquino in 19, what was it, 86, I think. And this was all kind of on CNN, only if it seems worthwhile to us. So I thought about that. I said, you know, that's a profound remark. And so we worked up a presentation. I actually wrote it out. That went like this. 
We are living more and more in an information age. It's transforming the way you work. It's going to transform everything. And if you live in a society that's closed and compartmented, there's no way you are going to be able to keep up in the information age and you'll fall behind. So it's in your interest to open things up more, to let people communicate more freely, to let them immigrate if they wish, and so on. Otherwise, if you, if you don't, uh, then you're going to miss this big wave that's coming that's going to have a huge effect on all of us. I wrote that out, and I went through it very carefully at one of the meetings so that their note taker would take it down exactly the way I said it. I later learned that it was read in that Politburo meeting, and I think it had some impact. So. I think your question is right on the mark in the sense that the emergence of the information revolution inevitably changes uh, a lot of what you do and uh, makes it more important to have a clear strategy, be able to react reasonably quickly, not get stampeded, but react reasonably quickly to what's going on. and. Uh, Register your points. And remember, the first impression is the one that lasts with people. So you've got to be on the ball. That's, that's great advice. We're, we're about out of time. I want to just sort of end with one question. You have, more than anyone that I know of, achieved a, a high level of success in disparate fields, in, in government, and business, and academia, certainly. And in your book, you talk about the way decisions are made in each of those sectors in sort of a fun way. One of the things we talk about in the class is career decisions and how to, how to balance your career with your personal life and, and what's really important. So any advice you have on the students either in how to choose their career or how to maintain perspective, we had a lot of high achievers or some future George Schultzes out here in the audience. Um, what advice would you have for them as they kind of think about how to pursue a career and how to maintain a balance with that? Well, the most important thing to do if you're a guy is get yourself a really great wife. <laughs> and if hey, you're a girl, you get yourself a really great husband. Because that kind of support is uh, essential. And I think your family and support of a family and you supporting them, it's, um, I don't know how people exist in these high pressure organizations that don't have that kind of support. And that means you've got to carve out time. You can't allow the job to so dominate you that you don't have time to spend with your wife and your kids and be part of the family. So that's uh, the first thing, I think. But if you work hard, there's plenty of time to do, and uh, you can do it. We had a rule in when I was a Secretary of State because in Washington, you're, you're invited out every night to something. And it's fun, it's interesting, but you work very hard during the day. If you go out at night, at least for me, I have to get a little sleep. And I like to 
See, so we had a rule that if you're invited to the White House, you go. If you're invited to the Vice President's house, you go. If you're invited to an embassy for a return visit on behalf of the President, you go. In other words, if the visitor has been entertained at the White House and there's a return and for some reason the President can't go and you're standing in for him, you go. The foreign ministers are coming through Washington all the time and they always have a dinner. They want you to come, but if you go to one, you have to go to the mall and you're going all the time. <laughs> a lot of countries. So we had a rule, we just go to those times and of course if friends you go with, that's it. So whenever I got through, sometimes it was late, I'd go home and uh, have a drink with my wife and kids are around have supper, and uh, you gotta make that kind of time. But I would say more generally on career choices, at least you, you make lists of the pros and cons of something, but probably you know almost in your gut instantly whether something makes sense or not for you. I'd follow your instincts. And somebody talks about work, and if work is defined as doing something you don't want to do, but you're doing it anyway because you need the money, then I've never worked in my life. That is, you want to do things that you find interesting and that are, you feel are worthwhile. You like to be feeling that you can make a difference of some sort. You're leaving the world a little better than you found it. So those are the kinds of things you want to find. And I think you'll discover that the money will take care of itself. You'll get paid enough. To, everybody doesn't have to have a yacht, you know. You can get along um, and have a good, interesting life. And maybe you'll hit it rich somehow and get a yacht, but that's, that's really not, there's, I can't imagine that there's that much satisfaction in that. So that would be my advice. Okay, <clears throat> well, just on behalf of the class, we'd like to thank you for your time. It's been a great time. Uh,